So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. everyone. Welcome to Conspirituality Podcast, where we investigate the intersection of conspiracy theories and spiritual influence to uncover cults, pseudoscience, and authoritarian extremism in all its forms. I'm Matthew Remsky. I'm Julian Walker. I'm Quinn Slobodian. And I'm William Callison. Welcome to Quinn and William. We'll get to your bios in a moment, uh, but now we'd like to tell everybody that we are on Instagram at ConspiritualityPod. And you can access our Monday bonus episodes through Patreon or through the Apple subscription service. And a little reminder for you that our book, Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Health Threat, is now out in print, ebook, and audiobook form, narrated by yours truly. And if you've read it or listened to it and you feel so moved, please review it. Spirituality 175, Diagonalism, with William Callison and Quinn Slobodian. Thanks so much for joining us today, Quinn. You're a professor of modern German history at Wellesley and William. You're a political theorist and a researcher in human geography at Uppsala University. Your work together has very interesting implications for how we think about the figures we study in this podcast. I'm thinking about people like J.P. Sears, who travels from being a very new agey, pro-choice, emotional healing coach to becoming a transphobic MAGA gun nut. And Christiane Northrup, who took this pandemic arc from Oprah-endorsed feminist doctor to becoming a QAnon booster who fantasizes about killing vaccine doctors. You know, there's lots of characters that we cover. And, you know, we're going to be asking you about why you use the term diagonalism to describe their politics. But just to go into a little bit more of a detail here with, with a portrait, um, we cover a guy named Mickey Willis. Uh, he's kind of our new age Zoolander. Uh, he's the producer of the Plandemic series of exploitation films. He's also a major catalyst for our podcast project. And so this is all his fault, really. Uh, he starts out in the 90s. Uh, he's in male modeling. He learns some AV chops. He gets familiar with the other side of the camera. And then he's in Manhattan by his own account on 9-11. And he has a mystical realization 
on that beautiful and terrible morning. Uh, he recalls approaching Ground Zero and either helping or imagining himself helping the first responders. And there's something about the smoke and dusk, dust and, and searchlights that fills him with a sense of spiritual purpose and, and urgency. So as far as we know at this point, he has no interest in politics whatsoever. And then he settles in Ojai, California. He crowdfunds a bunch of new age films that never get made. Then he goes viral among progressives, especially with a selfie video in which he encourages his son to play with Barbies. And then he hears Bernie on the stump in around 2015. And suddenly he's on a mission to support the first credible socialist candidate in 40 years. And he follows Sanders on the trail Either we can't really figure out whether he's formally or informally filming for him. We couldn't track any money or payments or contracts or anything like that. And there's no footage uh, that, that, you know, survives from that era. And then years later at QAnon conferences, as a headliner, he'll go on to say that he was a darling of the left. But we can't really figure out anybody who knew him. <laughs> um, but after Sanders bows out of the campaign... Willis shows up at Standing Rock, crowdfunding for more camera equipment to film a politically oriented spiritual awakening documentary, which also doesn't get made. So he's really like all hat, no cattle, all Palo Santo, like no soup kitchen or community <laughs> service, right? And then the world comes to know him as the most effective anti-vax propagandist after RFK Jr. During COVID, he cycles through all of the standard theories but they're centered around a single pole star, which is that the virus is a globalist plot to destroy our natural will to love each other and transcend all polarities. And then on January 6th, 2021, he's there at the Capitol cosplaying as a journalist. And he produces this handheld footage from within the middle of a phalanx breaking down a door with a crowd chanting, hang Mike Pence. And later he describes the intersection, the, the insurrection as a loving gathering of freedom fighters yearning for their tender and downtrodden voices to be heard. For anyone who doesn't know, that handheld footage that you described becomes part of the B-roll of all major news outlets, you know, that they play when, when they talk about the insurrection. There's Mickey Willis with his camera and they pan over him as the crowd is yelling, hang Mike Pence, it's crazy. Now, we don't expect you guys to have insights specifically into Mickey Willis because that's our field, but he's such a good exemplar of what you talk about. So hypothetically, what the fuck is going on with this guy? Yeah, I mean, I guess he would fit in our kind of cast of characters that we describe in the German context. But in other ways, he would be a bit less familiar. I think that the people that we focus on in our piece and that I think served as the kind of kernel of the anti-lockdown, anti-vaccination sort of shock troops of 2020 and 2021 tended not to be people who kind of came from the organized left in any way and then sort of had this transformation into anti-globalism. Uh, I would say the more sort of prototypical character that we've found would be people who are coming either from the kind of entrepreneurial community, like people who were just kind of online hustlers, often coming somehow out of the tech world, who latched onto this as just like another way to make money and sell t-shirts and, and monetize. Or in many cases, people who were would probably have seen themselves as quite 
apolitical in the sense of like direct affiliations. And we're probably more kind of lifestyle leftists, if anything, people who just focused on what would be seen as the kind of forms of um, individualized cultural expression around healthy eating, healthy living, um, had kind of taken the 1970s turn towards the individuality and the subjective and then just kind of rested there for uh, several decades until the incursions of the state kind of made them find an enemy again in the in the um, in the character of the the regulations that were infringing now on their unfolding of their free individual self-expression so that kind of um, political operator of the kind you describe I think was more in the minority I don't know if you'd agree with that well I, I think that's I think that's right I think at the same time there's a way that uh, that he shares a lot of attributes with some of the people that we'll be talking about. One of them being kind of uh, one foot inside electoral politics, very briefly, a kind of excitement about an anti-systemic, anti-establishment movement, but then very quickly getting frustrated by the fact that, uh, you know, my... My, my movement, my guy didn't win. So in, in the U.S. case, that was obviously Bernie Sanders. And so what do you what do you do with that mo- at that moment? Well, you kind of maybe revert back to your your origins in in kind of new age spirituality. Uh, you attempt to make money off of uh, your your involvement in politics are still very much kind of committed to something political in this case. But then it, it turns into a kind of grift, and you land out, you land ultimately on the on the doorstep of the Capitol. Um, and yeah, I, the 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 person who seems to mostly fit in in the German context would be Ken Jebsen, who was a kind of turned into a radio host. We might talk about him him later, but. I'd say, yeah, there are there are family resemblances here. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of overlaps, and I and I think that's that's right on the money, Will. Like. For someone like Mickey Willis, the the excursion into progressive politics was very uh, it was it was very dilettantish, I would say, and and very new. Like, oh, okay, politics. This is this is another way to sort of virtue signal my spirituality. And then it's not that big of a leap for him and many others like him to say the the Democrat the DNC rigged against Bernie. Uh, and so like this is politics is, is, is sort of, you know, all corrupt anyway. And I believe that the election was stolen for Trump. And now I'm putting my money behind Trump because he's a quote unquote populist too, right? If you want to understand, at least for me, the kind of the political composition of the people who would have been um, gravitating towards things like the pandemic documentary that you describe, there is, on the one hand, I think those people who are in a kind of a time in their life where they're maybe seeking meaning and maybe even seeking employment and seeking like the, the, the application of their energies and emotions somehow. But then I think for some reason, I, I feel that the more important story is less those kind of movement entrepreneurs and more the kind of larger mass of sometimes kind of tacit support that those um, anti-lockdown people and anti-vax people were able to draw from. And here's where I really felt a lot of um, sense of recognition when I was reading Naomi Klein's um, account in um, Doppelganger, because as it turns out, she and I 
were in the same part of the world. We were both in Western, on the edge of Western Canada in Western British Columbia at the time that the pandemic broke out. And so both witnessed the same thing, which was people who we had assumed to be kind of constitutionally left, uh, left of center or progressive suddenly transmuting into these um, really violently sort of misanthropic, um, not just anti-government, but kind of like anti-collectivist, um, and I would say kind of anti-human um, sort of proponents of social Darwinist logic. And that for me is remains the kind of abiding shock, you know, like the guy you described will always exist, right? I mean, whether he's hawking some new kind of coffee ersatz or sort of like reselling sneakers or like, or hustling, you know, crypto, there's going to be just sort of douchebags like that around, right? But to me, what is interesting about this sort of most recent cycle of politics is how people who had um, not scanned as political have sort of revealed themselves as having a kind of latent politics. And in that sense, the kind of movement hustler guy is, is interesting because he manages to see that too and sort of da- use his dowsing rod to find that. But ultimately, you know, he is just, I think, a symptom of a larger kind of uh, latent reservoir of discontentment, egotism, whatever it is. And so how to figure that larger kind of, um, you know, dark pool out is what I find important or interesting in a way. So for background context, Quinn, because you're already sort of gesturing towards this, uh, I want to ask you first about your work on neoliberalism and especially your book titled Globalists, which previews some of this material. You write that there's a politically left critique of globalism as a neoliberal economic principle that, as you say, serves to protect capitalism from democracy to create a kind of encasement around it. But then you said that there's also this critique of globalism that we see more from the nativist, nationalist, often conspiratorial right. So how are these two different? Do they overlap in any important ways? Well, I think there's kind of two ways of answering that question. The one is to say that, yes, of course, there is a kind of critique of globalism from both the left and the right, for sure. There's a kind of a one that might propose a different kind of internationalism or a different kind of socialism that would operate within, but also above and beyond states. And then there is the kind of nationalist position that says that any draining of sovereignty from the national government is a kind of... uh, transgression that needs to be fought against. But the one that I focus on in more my recent work, and and this is true of Will as well, is the way that kind of less intuitively certain people within the kind of neoliberal intellectual community have themselves kind of become anti-globalists. So this is a kind of something that happens over time. And my book that you just mentioned from 2018 describes a kind of a long, decades-long period within which people who were kind of finding themselves alienated by both fascists on the right and socialists on the left tried to figure out what set of institutions might serve to kind of keep mass democracy at bay, keep redistribution at bay, um, and lock in the rights of private property and the freedom of the movement of goods and money at a global level. And so this is a story I tell from like the 1920s to the 1990s. So a lot of people would look at the 1990s and say like, well, I guess they won, 
You know, you've got the WTO, you've got liberalization of capital movements, you've got an EU that is largely structured towards um, competition and a kind of a battle to the bottom in many ways. But paradoxically or surprisingly, those very neoliberals that have been pushing for that kind of um, international encasement of capital at the national level started to turn on supranational projects themselves. So they started to see the EU the WTO, the IMF, the UN as kind of Trojan horses for this global project of socialism. So this worry was, oh no, we've kind of cheer-led this this whole architecture and now the left is going to take it over and use it to carry out climate goals, to carry out feminist goals, to carry out goals of affirmative action, um, redistribution from richer countries to poorer countries, all things that, you know, unfortunately are not actually happening. But to their mind, the fact that globalism had now become a threat indeed turned people in some cases frequently who in their own biography had pushed for things like European integration now flipped and said, no, we actually need to re-anchor politics in the nation. And that is the safest space to protect capitalism. So the goal remains the same, but the scale at which it happens switches. And this, as I've described in, in work here and there, is really the where you find the roots of something like the Alternative for Germany Party or the AFD. It's a set of um, you know economics professors who think that Merkel has gone too far in bailing out Greece, that the EU has become this socialist beast and now needs to be you know seceded from and fought against. This is where the Austrian Freedom Party has its roots, the Swiss People's Party as well. So the fact that some of the people in the block of opposing lockdowns, opposing vaccination and so on, come from the kind of neoliberal camp itself can seem strange at first when you, if you think that neoliberalism is just sort of protecting the smooth flow of commerce and that, you know, Klaus Schwab is the only person who represents neoliberalism. But if you follow a slightly more tangled genealogy, you find out something else. Do the proponents ever reckon with this contradiction between, you know, the broad goal of the neoliberal free flow of goods and the desire for, you know, the retention of nativist sentiment and boundaries? Do do they ever speak directly to that conundrum? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I would say most of the time that's what they're talking about is how to kind of square this apparent tension. And they answer the question in different ways. So whether it's about immigration saying, if you insert ideas of like human capital, then it doesn't matter if you're keeping out low wage laborers because you're preserving, you're also keeping out would be parasites on the welfare state. Therefore that has an economic logic, right? Um, you know, arguing against certain kinds of, um, uh, monetary systems organized around the dollar or the gold standard can make sense if you think that national currency management is more rational. So, yeah, working between those two scales is is not something they kind of are uh, repressing or or some contradiction they're failing to address themselves. So that's the whole object of discussion. You describe something that really intrigued me as well, Quinn. This narrative flip that happens politically in which the elites who used to be perceived as capitalists exploiting the more socialist masses becoming framed as being too socialist with the populist masses now 
being the pro-capitalist ones. How does that work? And do you have some examples of this? I mean, that was definitely the kind of, I would say, the big inversion that happens across the 20th century. It's the beginning of the 20th century. You just assume that the masses are all kind of socialists in utero. And if given the vote, they're all going to sort of vote for communism, so to speak. And by the end of the 20th century, a lot of these neoliberal intellectuals are saying, wait a sec, actually, um, the very conditions under which people might believe in socialism have been either eroded or completely vaporized, meaning trade unions, um, mass industrial workforces in the global north, um, often forms of collective care, welfare states, mutual aid, um, the civil society that kept socialist communities afloat, whether it was playing sports together or having sewing circles or men's choirs and soccer games or whatever it was, if all of that doesn't exist, then if you give the people the vote, they'll vote for themselves. They'll vote for individualism and capitalism. And in fact, as someone like Murray Rothbard said, maybe the only socialists left are these kind of eggheads and bureaucrats sitting in Brussels and Washington. And according to him, the only reason they want socialism is so that they have more power to decide over the direction of other people's lives. So their socialism is not genuine. It's just another form of megalomania and kind of power grabbing. And I think that is, uh, you know, probably one of the most consistent through lines in the arguments of the kind of people that Will and I have looked at is that the elite only say that they care about, let's say, people's health. They only say that they care about the environment. They only say they care about women's rights or the, the, the poverty of most of the world's population. In fact, this is all just other different ways of describing their own hunger for individual power. And everything can be translated into that single um, idiom if you look twice. Yeah, and just to add to that that arc that that Quinn is drawing here about the the long twentieth century and the the long march of different kinds of neoliberalism that that develop over that period of time. I think it's both important to understand that part of this is the result of kind of the changing political economy that that we see in the twentieth century and in the post war period that he was describing. But it's also a very concerted effort of the neoliberals themselves to, to affect that inversion that you describe in, in the, in the first place, Julian, the, to say, well, it, it is in fact the, the desire of individuals to have free markets. Is, is that not the case? Right. And so this, not only were there neoliberal individuals um, and, and collectives of neoliberals who were, who were, developing theories to this effect, but it was also, you know, politicians like, um, like Margaret Thatcher and like Ronald Reagan, Thatcher in, in Thatcher's case, Stuart Hall described her movement already as a form of neoliberal populism, right? So the idea that all that individuals really want, uh, free markets, that, that this is in the best interest of everyone. And this is kind of, this is the people's desire it's interpolating both the people, but the people as individuals and their families. And so there's a yeah, kind of shift that's both material and discursive at the same time. It's like a combination punch here where somebody like Thatcher uh, does everything that she can to disassemble labor. 
And then she has to sell, along with her inheritors, the idea that you didn't want that anyway. You didn't want to work together. You didn't want to. Um, you didn't want to be be part of a society. Really, uh, it's like there's a two things have to happen, and they have to happen within a couple of decades in order for that to be locked in. What you really want is the freedom to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps mm-hmm. and, and and compete compete with your peers. Yeah, exactly. I think you know you have to hate the socialists, but then also love capitalist individualism. And if you ask for some concrete examples for how that's become people's reality, you know, the let's say the the fact that people's pensions are now mostly held as like four hundred one ks that just rise and fall with the stock market, um, and how much you will have when you retire depends on the daily movement, at least in your mind of the stock prices of the, the country's biggest industries. The fact that then, you know, things like the California um, Employment's uh, Public Employees Union is investing in <laughs> like mega projects in the Saudi Peninsula or, um, you know, projects to, to um, undercut unions in export processing zones across the world. Like there's a structural way that even those institutions we have that are supposed to be based on social democracy are now captured by, um, you know, zero sum competition. And so when people are, you know, in situations of precarity, cobbling together work through gigs or doing their small uh, private businesses, then when the government comes in and says, you can't have your business anymore, you can't leave your house then it feels like that specter of socialism has just raised its head, even if the government is making that case for capitalist economically rational purposes, which is like we don't want to have a a sick or dying population because that's hard. You know, they can't be valuable workers. That brings us to seminar time because we want to go through your 2021 piece for the Boston Review. It's called Corona Politics from the Reichstag to the Capitol, section by section. Okay. Um, Now, you say in your opening uh, together that in contrast to the more mediagenic populism of a few years prior, the diagonalist movement is less a revolt of the masses and more the revolt of small business owners, as per your comments just now, freelancers and the self-employed. You describe entrepreneurs of speculative and totalizing prophecies who are slipperier on the political spectrum. So th- this is the heart of it. This is this is what you've been talking about in terms of the demographics, right? Yeah, I'd say I'd say so. I think that we all remember this period at the very beginning of the pandemic, where we were kind of asking ourselves collectively, um, what will be the response to this this very unique event, both from the state and from us as as a society? And some people said, oh, this, this is very likely to engender a kind of a new era of collective solidarity, both on the part, hopefully, of states to to secure the conditions of survival for all, but also for to develop forms of solidarity. And of course, in part, there were developments that conformed to to some of that hope. But to a large extent, there uh, this was um, uh, a kind of accelerant of certain dimensions that were already there pre-pandemic. 
And so the, the fact that you have small business owners revolting or f- framing the state in, in exactly the way that Julian was describing before as, as a kind of um, overbearing authoritarian entity by, by its very nature that could not but uh, want to harm individuals, to take away freedom, to arbitrarily impose measures from vaccines to lockdowns, this kind of paranoia about about freedom and having freedom taken away was almost at the tip of the tongue of of certain segments of society including those that you just uh you just described and i think it's not just that sort of those people were predisposed to feeling that way right i mean if you think about just the conditions for economic survival in the first six months of the pandemic then the closer you were to like a kind of collective uh, status employment situation, the better your condition was. So if you were a public servant, then you were in almost all cases kind of allowed to work from home or sort of furloughed given uh, the, you know, the continued salary in your, in your bank account. If you were part of a large corporation that had that capacity as well, then often you were given the right to work at home unless you were someone who was on the assembly line or working in an Amazon warehouse. But as you go down the kind of the scale of the size of business, um, whether it's public or private, once you get to people who do need, did need to go and, you know, open up the nail salon or teach the yoga class as the sort of prototypical examples went, give the tattoo, then you started to get to people that had no safety net, no ability to work from home. They did work person to person, face to face. That could not be replaced. And their fear of, um, you know, economic ruin is a lot more understandable. So, um, you know, I think that it's important to see that that those kind of extreme emotional reactions or the jumps to political conclusions that some people came to came out of the genuinely dire uh, material everyday circumstances that some people found themselves in by virtue of, you know, living in the cracks of the kind of informalized uh, post-Fortis economy that we all kind of inhabit. You know, there was one business in my neighborhood um, here in Toronto, east end of Toronto, uh, a barber shop that I used to go to that I loved going to. And during one of the shutdown periods, they broke the bylaw repeatedly uh, and they got fined. And then eventually I think they had to surrender their their business license or can't remember what the outcome was, but I, it, it was at that point that I started to have some real misgivings about the general feeling within center left and sometimes progressive media about blaming small business owners for their revolt. These guys were barbers. Like they, it's not like they, it's not like you could say to them, follow the science, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's not or like work you work from home <laughs> or work from home. You there was nothing on offer for these guys. The, their lives were built around the chairs, uh, and keeping the chair full and also, um, speaking, you know, often intimately with their clientele on a daily basis, all of that's suddenly gone. And somehow there was a lot of us who said, you, you should be less pissed about that or you mm. should be less confused about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there, you know, it is important to keep in mind the way that 
much of the kind of um, contempt and scorn that that people that maybe that we know and maybe even are felt for the kind of um, anti-globalist conspiracies that people were were um, entertaining either at that time or later was just a, is a kind of a classism and it, and it was a kind of a classism that was made more obvious in these stark moments when the sort of all the lights were flipped on and people's working conditions were made um, uh, visible to all. But I think that it also should make us see what we think of as neoliberalism differently. So I think that one of the shoddiest understandings of what neoliberalism is is that is the way that some people would conflate it with like the World Economic Forum and the idea of the Great Reset? Yeah, which is obviously a um, an idea that floats around frequently with people who are also against the lockdown or vaccination being obligatory. That behind it all stood the diabolical figure of Klaus Schwab with his like fourteen point plan to um, squish individual freedom, and the idea that that is somehow the apotheosis of neoliberalism, which um, I've certainly read and seen people saying is ridiculous. I mean, the apotheosis of neoliberalism is Milton Friedman in Free to Choose walking around and pointing at big companies and big corporations even and saying, look at this thing, it's threatening us. There's the government. It's a big building. It's full of people telling us what to do. The heart of freedom is the individual, the work they do every day, the enterprising spirit of going out and, you know, finding your own way in the world. So the anti-lockdown stuff or the diagonalist stuff, as we describe it in the in the piece, is not a kind of resistance to neoliberalism or an opposition to neoliberalism. It's quite clearly a continuation of the very sort of essence of self-making um, atomistic, anti-collectivist, um, libertarian selfhood that um, sees all forms of expertise and sort of science backed by governments with a great deal of suspicion and sees them as simply camouflage for um, the expansion of the the, the domain of, of administration against the individual. So I think that for me is one of the, the the points I would like to make, especially to people who are coming to this from a kind of a leftist perspective. I mean, I have to say that I wrote a piece uh, fairly early in the pandemic about the Great Reset conspiracy. And I think I lost more sympathy on the left with that one piece than anything I've ever done before or since. I mean, there was a lot of people who had seemed to like me who didn't like me and who and who saw that as a sign of my having been kind of co-opted by the neoliberals themselves. So I think that sorting that out is not just important sort of analytically, but it's important politically. Like, I think that if you find um, collective action informed by some kind of constructive relationship with elected governments as being itself like always tainted or always like the path to um, globalism, then you've really painted yourself into a corner politically. And it's hard to see how you could ever build kind of um, mass movements of a positive kind from that position out. I mean, for me, it evokes a, a, an empathy for people who find themselves in that situation where they've bought into the idea of pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps and then the bootstraps are taken away and they have no social safety net to fall back into. And so then what are they going to yank on? You know, what, what, what are they going to get 
you know, involved in. I also, this may be naive, but I have to say, I had, I had a revelation hearing you speak a few minutes ago about the pension funds and the literal buy-in that happens sort of, you know, almost without knowing that it's happening, where suddenly your the money that you're going to use in your golden years is tied to the the fates of the market. And so like, and how does that then affect your, your tendency to vote for this policy or that policy? It's just, that's extraordinary. Right. So if you're, you know, in the United States, 50% of this population is somehow invested in the stock market. When you look at that business report at the end of the day, it's like, you know, checking your cholesterol level or your, <laughs> you know, it's like you're looking at the vital signs of your own um, well-being in the world, uh, which that kind of full cathexis with the economy in the abstract sense um, makes you realize how kind of existential a lot of this stuff is for people. And I think that goes for the other side too, right? That goes for the pro-lockdowners and the pro-vaxxers. I mean, the idea that we need to do this stuff to save the American economy was also, of course, a big motivator for people who were um, supporting the kind of main mainline uh, recommendations of the Democrats and so on. So, William, you're in Berlin, you're joining us from abroad, and this whole paper that has brought us together uh, draws on uh, your study together of a particular anti-quarantine and vaccine movement uh, in Germany called Querdenken. Am I saying that right? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. So you write, uh, taking a cue from Querdenken in Germany, we call the strategy behind the diverse movements diagonal thinking and the broader phenomenon they represent diagonalism, bridging the more familiar concept of queerfront and the more recent term queerdenken. The idea of diagonalism exceeds the German context of its coinage, where it means something like out of the box thinking. So, can can you just can either of you just unpack the history of of queerdenken a bit? Yeah. So in the in the German context, Querdenken largely became synonymous with anti-lockdown, anti-vax um, social movements or the online discourse as well. It, it was it became so uh, prominent eventually, and it really was, in fact, I think some of the earliest street-level protests were literally put together in terms of um, uh, financially supported by uh, the the guy who um, was using this term. He, he himself was an entrepreneur from Stuttgart and he, like many others in the pandemic, people we've been talking about so far, uh, was a small business owner, an entrepreneur, had had a number of startups, and the the pandemic kind of was a was a trigger to not simply ensure the continuation of of his businesses, but to kind of mold his businesses um, into yeah essentially vehicles uh, for a new political movement that was against against the state kind of two core against authoritarianism. And, and he was kind of initially framing the movement as one of um, civil liberties, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and so on. 
And uh, what happened kind of from that initial phase where you had early, early protests um, organized by, by this guy, his name's Michel Balveig, and, uh, and others like him were street protests where you saw on the one hand kind of very normy, uh, left liberal types who previously weren't extremely political. You had the kind of uh, stereotypical uh, hippie types or new age types walking along them. And at the same time in Germany, you had neo-Nazi groups at the same protests. And so there was this big kind of um, question being raised about what's going on that your uh, that your podcast has so excellently explained over the years. But in, in this case, Kreodenken was, I mean, a way of packaging it from the start uh, as a movement that was, so what does Kreodenken mean? It means, as you, as you mentioned before, a way of thinking outside of the box. But it was also a term that in the German context came out of... Uh, essentially corporate speech and kind of 1990s, early 2000s groups that were very much committed to innovation, very much uh, part of the same kind of business community, organizing conferences, doing, yeah, doing kind of weird things with just, if there were, if there was a political edge to them, it was very, it's very blunt and, and it mutated into this. In the same way, move fast and break things was not intended as a kind of futurist manifesto. You know, it's it's the same kind of strange morphing of like a piece of um, just kind of tech jargon into a piece of politics. But I think I, if I could say something about why we found that a useful term to work with and where diagonalism becomes useful for us. And I think perhaps also why um, Naomi Klein also found it useful to adopt in her recent book is that it goes against, it's sort of an alternative to the horseshoe theory. Yeah. So right on (laughs) the the horseshoe theory for the 1.5 people out there listening who have never heard of it is the notion that the far left and the far right, you know, at some point become identical and the, the, the extremes touch. And usually when you see things like this, hippies and skinheads in the street together, people would be like, well, that's a great piece of evidence for the quote unquote horseshoe theory. <laughs> but our argument is that, you know, actually, if you look where about look at the kind of the heart of this movement, it's not at the extremes, it's actually in the center. So it's not taking uh, truly anti-systemic or radical energies and redirecting them towards a new target. It's actually taking things that we're all encouraged to feel by mainstream societies in which we live and then uh, amplifying them. So it's a kind of extreme version of the kind of personal branding that everyone does on social media. It's kind of the extreme version of, you know, the primarily self-interested, you know, harnessing of one's resources and time and care and affect, not to an end of building a new society or towards a kind of agreed upon end of the transformation of, of, of the collective conditions of everyday life, but really to just fight tooth and nail for that kind of individual space of autonomy that you feel like you're in the danger of losing. So because the diagonal doesn't The diagonal doesn't start at two ends, but it goes straight through the heart of things. It goes through the middle. We feel like this is a kind of radicalized centrism more than it is a kind of meeting of two extremisms. Just to add, 
to that observation about a lot of this coming out of the quote unquote middle of society, which is big, die Mitte der Gesellschaft in German is a kind of uh, almost a mantra that all political parties appeal to. And so the, the idea that you would have a, a, a radical political movement or a conspiratorial social movement coming out of the middle of society is quite scary here above all. There's a way that we very much are um, contrasting this, uh, this account with horseshoe theory, but at the same time, I think some of what we're about to, to talk about is we're also observing that people within this movement can take kind of selectively from left-wing critiques or right-wing critiques and uh, kind of piece them together with this this kind of exercise in, in branding or the exercise in kind of conspiratorial or, or kind of hyper-individualist ideologies to, to make something new. And so there's ways that, that the left can be, left discourses can be susceptible to um, to movements of this sort. On the theme of nomenclature uh, and the types of groups who uh, intersected through Kordenkin, we first became aware of the name of the group because of a famous anti-lockdown event in 2021 in Berlin. It was headlined by RFK Jr., who we've spent a long time covering, now, first of all, is he a lauded figure in that landscape? And then do you feel, as he does, that the Daily Beast writer uh, who called Kordenkin neo-Nazi, uh, do you think that that is a step too far or is it too simplistic? I, I don't actually know much about the um, status of RFK Jr. I suppose they all love him. But I would actually agree that at seeing them as synonymous with neo-Nazis is actually pretty useless and definitely uh, confuses more than it clarifies. Nazis, you know, were statists. <laughs> it need, need not be sort of restated that the, the idea of fascism and, state and, and Nazism was to concentrate power centrally towards sort of collectively transformative ends of, you know, a, a completely abhorrent and anti-humane variety and to precisely kind of remold humanity into a new shape through mass action, through centralized coordination. I think it's possible to think of bad politics that aren't necessarily helpfully understood through comparison to fascism. I think that the Kver Denkin and the diagonalist movements we're looking at are dangerous and problematic, not because of their proximity to fascism, but because they represent something quite new. They represent a kind of uh, a hybrid form of resistance and desocialization and creating like invidious distinctions among people who should be seeing their interests in common in a way that um, doesn't involve creating kind of, you know, Hitler youth type mass mass movement organizations or um you know, certainly building Autobahns or anything at that. I'm realizing listening to you that uh, there would be no Lenny Riefenstahl Triumph of the Will type film that could be made about the movements that we're talking about, right? Because nobody would stand in straight lines. Uh, they the, the staging wouldn't be right. Um, 
you know, it, it just wouldn't be tidy. Well, there was, it wasn't pandemic, but there wasn't there, there was a, a, an attempt to do this in the first months of the pandemic with the guy kind of walking through London during lockdown with his mask off. But it was it was precisely like a heroic vision of the resistor. Oh, to um, yeah, and and was filmed with sort of aesthetics of a somewhere between like a fashion shoot and a music video. Nice, but specifically an individual, right? So right. I think you're right that the idea of of forming into into like fast into like fast coordinated patterns and so on is not very fair dankerish, but. Um, I'm sure they would aestheticize it in their own ways. And just to pick up on the, the first part of your question about whether RFK Jr. is a lauded figure in, in Germany, the, 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 the Germans love John F. Kennedy because of his, uh, his Ich bin ein Berliner speech at, at, at the Brandenburg Gate, and now there's the John F. Kennedy School at, at the Brandenburg Gate. And they love Obama oh so much here. And so the kind of, the idea of kind of a, uh, an American royalty or some t- like some type of um, fantasy about about American benevolence, a kind of left or center or cent- very much kind of liberal center left style politics in the United States and the Democratic Party is very much. Yeah, a kind of obsession in Germany. And so the idea of having RFK come to give a speech where then he's saying, no, look, I'll tell you what the real authoritarianism is, just like the Soviet Union. It's the German state. It's the actual American state is, is, I mean, it's a very clever move on the part of, of, of Balweg and Kverdenken to invite him over. And then to the other thing that I'd add is just, I mean, as you have uh, noted in the podcast many times, um, there's a way that RFK himself is, is a kind of perfect diagonalist figure because of, one, how mutable many of his positions are, even though he's kind of this or kind of anti, anti-vaxxer and, and kind of new age type. He can piece together very different kind of views of, of the environment and climate policy where it seems like, oh, he's a real defender of the environment on the one hand. And then a couple of weeks later, you hear him say climate denialist type stuff. Right. Right. And where, um, on the one hand, it seems like he would be very much part of the democratic party. And then on the other hand, he's hanging out with and borrowing right from the most radical libertarians in the U S context. Um, so yeah, I would say that he, he both fits as this kind of a German, a German fantasy and he fits the diagonalist description quite well. Yeah. I think it's helpful also to, think about the Querdenker and the diagonalists in terms of a kind of genealogy of what has been called the digital party in the last decade or so. There's a sociologist named Paolo Gerbaudo who's written a really good book called The Digital Party. And it looks at things like the Pirate Party, the Five Star Movement, the Brexit Party. And these are all kind of like insurgent political parties that went from being nowhere to suddenly, in many cases, you know, forming governments, having hundreds of thousands of members, um, all mediated through online platforms and all making the same promise, which is like, we will be your direct voice in government in a time when you feel ever more alienated and distanced by corrupt politicians, the old familiar names, the old familiar parties. We are something new. We are actually like hacking the political system for your benefit. And now 
for once you will be able to interact with government the same way you interact with everything else online. In other words, like at the click of a button, you can vote, you can see the speeches as they're, as they're happening, you can stream them and so on. So they promise this like radical horizontal uh, relationship between members of the new insurgent political formation. But as this sociologist Gerbaudo shows us, in case after case, they end up producing the exact opposite, which is they produce a hyper concentration of power in what he calls hyper leaders, the sort of charismatic leaders in each of these end up basically making all the decisions, despite the kind of trappings of sort of these quasi immediate referenda or plebiscites, which end up not being really used, no matter how good the platforms are. And most of the time, they're rather short-lived. So they come, they seem to have transformed the political landscape. And then often, you know, within a couple of years, they've totally vanished. So I think that, you know, rather than the Nazi party, I think it's helpful to think about this new diagonalist sort of explosion after the after the the coronavirus pandemic and the subsequent um, attempts to contain it as being like another go-round of these digitally mediated political formations, but now just ones that are sort of in search of a container, or maybe they are, maybe they are, these have, are now sort of digital parties without the hyper leader. And so they just manifest as these sort of inchoate online um, expressions. Well, I think that allows us to turn to some of the technological underpinnings of this because uh, you write that born in part from transformations in technology and communication, diagonalists tend to contest conventional monikers of left and right while generally arcing towards far-right beliefs to express ambivalence, if not cynicism, towards parliamentary politics and to blend convictions about holism and even spirituality with a dogged discourse of individual liberties. And Julian, did this sound a lot like uh, the Californian ideology to you? Yeah, absolutely. This, uh, this holistic uh, back to nature appeal to sort of human potential as a libertarian uh, dream that the newly emerging digital tools were going to set us all free for a participatory democracy that somehow would be at our fingertips, right? Was there a connection here for you to going back to the work of Barbrook and Cameron? Yeah, I'd say so. I, I, I think that the the idea, as, as Quinn was just saying, about um, organizing, but also innovating from below, like around a kind of ideal of horizontalism where it's not just the kind of the ideal of horizontalism being like the most the most democratic form of organization, but also the the idea that uh, technology that that this this form of political organization will kind of latch on to technological developments and lead to kind of the the ever expanding arc of freedom into the future is uh vis-a-vis, well, th- through uh, the miracle that is capitalism, in other words, uh, is is something that you find most of these, most of the Kfer Denken and Michel Balveig type figures uh, espousing. Yeah, and I think there's some similar blind spots too, right? I mean, given that 
um, the kind of California ideology of decentralization is kind of belied by the fact that there's almost monopolistic control of like the platforms on which people communicate and like complete surveillance of their actions and their uh, <laughs> the, the movement of their mouse and cursor and, and eyeballs as they interact with those platforms. I mean, it's it's hard to sustain that one. And I think the that's true in the Claire Dinkin movement too, is like you just kind of have to pretend not to think about the fact that you are completely dependent on a private uh, service provider that could at any point be, um, you know, watching your every move. And if not openly the way that non-encrypted uh, um, platforms, you know, beyond Telegram do, then, um, then, Anyone who has been paying attention knows that that the kind of the choke points of of the information superhighway are pretty well surveilled by the American intelligence service. And there's very it's very hard to find a space online that is somehow genuinely open and free. So that I see that less as kind of like um, a way to do a kind of aha move and expose the hypocrisy of the Diagonalist and more is like a genuinely anguished kind of um, sort of something that drives their radicalism on further, I think, is the fact that despite their desire to create sort of open spaces in which they are truly living like in unmediated lives, they still find themselves chained to these um, platforms of mediation. I think that they know that and it it kind of is driving them one of the things that's driving them crazy. Um, so a the one thing that would actually work is the thing that no, none of them seem to be willing to do, which is to just like throw away their phones and unplug and like just actually go and live like a simple life in the countryside. That doesn't seem to be, interestingly, a choice that very many from these people, this, this group is actually doing, which suggests that there's a kind of addictive uh, relationship that they have to the very thing that they're spending all of their time condemning and criticizing. All right, we're going to keep quoting you back uh, to yourselves. At the extreme end, diagonal movements share a conviction that all power is conspiracy. Public power cannot be legitimate, many believe, because the process of choosing governments is itself controlled by the powerful and is de facto illegitimate. And this seems to me like one of those classic performative contradictions, like once you've completely destabilized truth claims, be they journalistic or scientific, and, and you've delegitimized elections and all forms of institutionalized power, what are we left with? And on what do these influencers base their claims of some special insight into what's really going on and what the way forward might be? Yeah, I, I think that here you see part of the borrowing from a tradition of leftist critique. So the idea that uh, it doesn't matter which party you choose because ultimately the parties will be subject to the the interests and power of capital, right? That they will ultimately uh, yield the same results is is a critique that uh, that both often has merit and that we're familiar with. And when it's being used, for uh, for the ends of 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 the diagonalist, it, 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 this critique kind of takes on a new dimension because there's not the kind of background 
uh, commitment to a common good that you have in the, in the leftist critique, right? So if there's if there's no belief, no commitment to producing something better, to reforming the system. Uh, to to generate different outcomes, but it's really just burning burning it down, right? As as you were describing in the quote, none of these anti-corruptionists are actually like getting behind campaign finance reform or you know trying to figure out how to have transparency within you know where the black money is coming from, the dark money is coming from. Like none of that. Yeah, and and at the same time, when the, just to the the bit of the question about destabilized truth claims and and where where we go when there's when there's not a kind of common or a, some level of trust in media or or scientific uh, scientifically produced knowledge, and we kind of find ourselves in the situation that we're in now with with Elon Musk's uh, Twitter X, where you know he posts over and over not simply uh, criticism of the New York times, but an appeal to citizen journalism as the, as the kind of cutting edge of a world where we're going to be beyond falsehoods. And we're only, we're only going to live in the truth when, when all reporting and all knowledge production is quote unquote democratized. Um, though you better purchase that, uh, the blue check for, for 10 or 20 bucks, I forget in order to uh, participate in this in this lofty endeavor. I think the angle you're taking, Julian, is the right one there, which is is about this question of, you know, if all power corrupts, how do you live life? I mean, how, how do you interact with others? And I think that, that this is where it circles back to the, the Californian ideology in a way, which is like, if you believe all power corrupts, then you would rather have power uh, gathering in private spaces than public spaces. So you would rather have a monopolistic tech platform than a monopolistic state because then you have, and this is what the important thing, the chance to kind of opt in and opt out, at least theoretically, right? So this is where I think this connects to some of the stuff that I write about in my newer book, Crack Up Capitalism, is there's a kind of affinity here with the libertarian model of the gated community, which is like, redo the social contract, do it at a small scale and make it literal. So you're actually signing a set of terms and conditions and saying, I agree to live this way. And I understand there's only 25 other families who want to live that way, but that's the only way that I see as being able to live kind of with the minimum level of coercion and non-aggression or whatever, right? Um, and, and confiscation of my personal liberties. So I think that that's the only kind of direction that I can see this going in is towards more kind of smaller scale, privatized, um, opt-in forms of governance and communities where, as Will is saying, I mean, that sort of that Edenic post-revolutionary vision of the, the world transformed that animated so much of mass politics for the last 200 years is just left aside, right? I mean, the idea of transforming the globe is itself been determined to be like a corrupt enterprise. Therefore, all you can do is try to transform a small amount, a small number of kind of like-minded true believers. And that seems to me the only kind of politics you can get out of this. And it, it sits uneasily with the existing system of nation states we still have, 
but you have hints of it, for example, in Germany with the Reichsburger, you know, um, coalition, which was a very diagonalist one of kind of gold bugs, white supremacists, monarchists, <laughs> small business people, hippies, um, all saying, we found a loophole. The Federal Republic of Germany actually doesn't exist. It was imposed by all the edict of the Allied government. Therefore, we can return back to pre-fascist um, imperial Germany and live in sort of um, legally pure circumstances and conditions. Those are the, you have to search for those loopholes and wormholes, I think, if you want to find a workable politics here. Okay, one of the most interesting parts of this paper is that you attempt a typology of figures and influencers in diagonalism. One term that you use is movement hustler, and you apply this to Michel Balweg, uh, who, as we've said, played a key role in hosting RFK Jr. in Berlin. Uh, so he's he's one type, but then you have um, what you call the left-to-right ideologue. Can you explain that particular uh, profile, that that hook to us? Yeah, so in in that case, just to give the, the one example that we focus on at the beginning is, is Ken Jebsen, who uh, became very well known because of his social media presence, his presence on YouTube and his show called Ken FM. But he had previously kind of been almost like uh, like the Mickey character that we that we discussed at the beginning had had a foot in left politics previously, and then he got quote unquote canceled for uh, anti-Semitic remarks. And so you kind of see this trajectory from the left to right where he's. Um, He's pushing the boundaries, but he's a very kind of charismatic figure who's trying to bring all different kinds of people into the this big umbrella of, of anti-authoritarian independent media. And so I think in the U.S. case, the kind of most uh, similar kind of figure might be uh, Jimmy Dore. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure whether Glenn Greenwald or Matt Taibbi are are exact equivalents because those are people with you know uh, with a with, with a journalistic background before they kind of enter the sphere of talking heads on YouTube and then moving over to Rumble and and they weren't necessarily ever kind of self-identified uh, leftists. They had this kind of left libertarian. Uh, kind of backdrop, but I think with through those figures, you can kind of understand the contours of of Ken Yepsen. Just so that I'm not lost here, can you do you have like a one or two sentence on what a movement hustler is? Yeah, I mean, I think those those are people who were previously basically apolitical or non politicized who came more out of the entrepreneurial community and sort of hatched or latched onto this as a way to. Um, sell subscriptions, sell, sell T-shirts. Michel Balveig himself was not an active member of any political movement, so he didn't really move from left to right. He just uh, found this to be a good way to, um, to have a successful business idea for a change. Opportunistic, yeah. They gamified politics, basically. Okay, so with regard to the left-to-right ideologue, uh, Klein, uh, who quotes you, says that this figure is necessary in far-right or diagonalist politics because she says a few prominent self-identified progressives 
and or liberals, being involved is critical. Importantly, the role of these progressives is not to renounce the goals of social justice and embrace a hard right worldview. On the contrary, they must continue to identify as proud members of the left or devoted liberals while claiming that it is the movements and tendencies of which they were once part that have betrayed their own ideals, leaving these uniquely courageous individuals politically homeless and in search of new alliances. These exiles from progressivism package themselves not as defectors but as loyalists because it's their former comrades and colleagues, they claim, who are the imposters. The fake. So, does that sort of rationale for the left to right interloper does that track with what you found? I think that's a great passage, and it makes me think about sort of true believer neoliberals like Milton Friedman, who I would define by people who place economic freedom over political freedom. The interesting thing about these left to right uh, travelers is they tend to do something sort of a slate of hand where they begin to put civil freedom ahead of social justice. So the what should remain for them is a belief in the need for some kind of redistributive equality or you know some kind of end state where economic inequality has been has been um, has been ameliorated somehow but that seems to fade deep into the background um, instead replaced by a kind of obsession about matters of speech and platforming which I would imagine for any good socialist would always be subordinate to a kind of a larger question of political economy. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of um, slate of hand there. But I think I completely agree that for marketing purposes, it's absolutely necessary to be able to sort of say, like, look who's speaking to us. Wow, could you ever have imagined that so-and-so, a former member of the left party, is now on stage with a member of the AFD? Um, that sort of left-right tie-up, which is well represented by... Um, the compact magazine, the German version, and published by someone named Jürgen Elsässer, who himself kind of traveled from the Marxist left to the right, is, uh, I think it's really important as a magnet for people of a certain generation and a certain political disposition who want to still see themselves as, um, as you say, or as Klein says, having some fidelity to these sort of original leftist principles. If we recall when there were all these alt platforms being launched, Parler offered $20,000 for a liberal, someone in the liberal or lefty sphere to join this new, this new platform. So this literal financial incentive to, to make sure that your ranks are wide enough and doesn't, you know, they, your ranks don't just include uh, far-right ideologues, but you have an array of characters. How are they going to work that out? Were they going to do a survey? Were they going to, do, were they just headhunting individuals? Were they going to look at like voting records or donations? Or, like, what was that going to, you know, be like? I mean, one thing can I just say really quick, because I think it's important for the left division is that you, this also needs to be understood in terms of the kind of class first versus identity politics divide that has emerged on the left and very much divides currently the German left and the left party in particular, the people who think that there's some people who put the concerns of immigrants and people of color and women and, and gender minorities ahead of class issues and their alienation from what they call identity politics has often led them to make strange bedfellows with people who I think also don't have class first politics, but they, because they despise other members of the left so much, they'll be willing to take up 
company with people from the other side of the spectrum. Okay, uh, so these these typologies I think are are really interesting and instructive. The last one we have here is the far right esoteric entrepreneur. <laughs> and we know this type actually pretty darn well on the podcast. How, how would you describe this character? I mean, I guess as opposed to the movement hustler type who is maybe, you know, someone who is active in the tech or startup world, this is the radicalized yoga instructor, the famous example, right, of someone who's in, I mean, we're talking about Germany here. So like the well is deep and, you know, full of things from um, sort of turn of the century life reform movements to Steiner schools and Steiner diets and all forms of esoteric practice that live on uh, in surprisingly mainstream ways sometimes, right? You'd be surprised how many people think homeopathy is like a real thing in, in Germany. So there is a lot of possibility there. And that also is, I think, where there is a bit of a Venn diagram overlap with people that would be called fascist in the sense that there is some sense of rootedness to place and bloodline that often taps into kind of certain notions of pre-Christian um, pagan spirituality. And this is the kind of so-called brown wing of the Alternative for Germany party that is mostly interested in sort of extra economic ideas of belonging and um, community rather than just, you know, uh, austerity and fiscal discipline. Interestingly, the the birthplace of the Waldorf school, I think the first Waldorf school was built in Stuttgart, which is the same place that Michel Balweg comes from in Querdenken was born. And so you have, I mean, it's very much rooted in that part, that southwestern part of, of Germany. Also, interestingly, I mean, the idea that you would kind of arrive at truths through introspection that would have the same kind of validity as, as natural science, kind of arcs across from, you could also say arcs across the ideological spectrum of Querdeng, but also the geography of the country to the east where as Quinn was describing, you have this this really the, the really hard or the really brown part of the the far right in the off day that is now kind of very much building uh, a new climate discourse that is in in many cases quite eco fascist in character, and there's they're moving from positions that they previously were using that were just climate denialist to actually recognizing the climate science, and, but then giving a kind of neo-Malthusian turn to the, the discourse to kind of, you know, embed it in certain racist understandings of culture and nature and, and locality. In Germany, the menu of things that you can draw from to be kind of anti-establishment is quite different than in North America. So it is just the case that within this diagonalist world, you know, to invoke America is kind of anti-establishment, like that, hence the RFK thing. Huh. To invoke uh, Christianity is kind of anti-establishment because Christianity isn't supposed to be wrapped up in politics. So some of these esoteric entrepreneurs we cite in the piece are coming from things like Seventh-day Adventism or the evangelical church, which is considered very far out and some, in some cases even illegal in Germany, right? It was only recently that Scientology was able to kind of operate openly. Jehovah's Witnesses are considered to be a kind of security threat at some times. So these things that in America would seem like the most mainstream possible kind of values 
um, in a country where the secular and the kind of scientifically informed um, practice of government really governs the the center of the mainstream, um, you can produce all kinds of curious kind of hybrids and recombinations on the edges. Now, with regard to political response, uh, you note that Angela Merkel really walked into a trap with regard to uh, diagonalist actors. Uh, You write that in a moment reminiscent of the summer of 2016, when presidential candidate Hillary Clinton denounced the alt-right in a long speech, thus indirectly boosting public interest in the topic, Angela Merkel spoke to the topic of Kverdenkin in mid-December with rare emotion, calling the movement an attack on our entire way of life. She said that since the Enlightenment, Europe has chosen the path of building our view of the world on the basis of facts. Okay. Uh, Confronting an anti-factual movement was very difficult, she said. Perhaps it will be a task for the psychologists. Then you write, Merkel's remarks were shared by Kordenker on social media with glee because her attempt to brand them with the stigma of mental illness confirmed their belief that the mainstream could only respond to their provocations with censorship and diagnosis. So, you know, from one point of view, uh, Merkel's comments are obvious, if, you know, a little bit banal, and maybe they're historically revisionist. But on the other uh, they're, they're really tone deaf. And I'm wondering if you think that politicians like that are going to learn from interactions uh, like the one that you recount here. On that question, I'm a bit pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, parallel, <laughs> the parallel that we draw in the piece is between uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, labeling of Trump supporters as deplorables. And in this case, in the German case, uh, there's an appeal to the Enlightenment and a characterization of, of Ferdenker or anti-lockdown types as not just psychologically deranged, but anti-Enlightenment. And in Germany, that, that's really that, I mean, that's a that's really out of bounds, real insult to say you're anti-Enlightenment. And so I think that it I mean, it depends on who your your audience, your public is to say, ah, yes, that was tone deaf. I think in in the case of Hillary Clinton, there there were some that resonated with a certain part of the country that did see anyone who would vote for Trump in that light. But in terms of building a leftist politics, uh, yeah, I, I think indeed that's 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 tone deaf. And in the case in the German case, when our kind of critique of of Merkel is not simply from a left point of view where she should have, you know, framed her discourse in a better way, but it's also kind of misunderstanding of the way in which people in this movement understood themselves and their own relationship to science and to the enlightenment, which as, as you describe frequently on the podcast, the idea of doing your own research and the idea of um, being able to, uh, yeah, to fact check or to uh, give the give the models on um, you know on the contagion of the virus a look yourself uh, is very much part of uh, the self understanding of the movement. You know, ideally, if we could imagine sort of like uh, a perfect outcome for all of this, would be that now that we're entering this era of kind of as I think 
David Wallace Wells recently talked about his pandemic revisionism, even where people are like walking back things that they thought before and they're sort of second guessing of measures that were actually carried out. I mean, it's a real opportunity, I think, right now. If, if this could not be uh, construed as such a partisan question and to be understood and said along the kind of axes we've been laying out here, which is like, what was the actual exposure to risk of people based on where they were in terms of their occupation and their class position? You know, like what did a lockdown mean based on your line of work being this versus that? What kind of risk tolerance do you have as a parent versus a person with pre-existing conditions and so on? I mean, these there are like matrices of like danger and risk here where people all sit in different places. And what the kind of pro-lockdown versus anti-lockdown argument did was it just cut like a very blunt line through what's actually a very, I think, you know, entangled and like complex embroidered landscape. And to do science in public is always to kind of grope your way towards a new, the next version of truth. And the ideal version here, again, of like a public sphere is where we could do the same with policy, where we could sort of say, we don't know exactly what happened, whether or not we made the right choices. Let's think about it together and talk about how we could all be less susceptible to levels of risk that are unacceptable to us in the future. You know, we've been looking very closely uh, for most of this conversation at your your piece about Kerdenkin, um, and it's it's from a couple of years ago now. In it, you outline three possible futures for diagonalist movements. Um, and very often, when we talk to people, as we've experienced too with our writing, you know how we're perceiving a situation evolves over time. Uh, what's in your crystal ball right now in terms of possible futures for diagonalism? Yeah. So in in the in the piece, we we talk about different ways that the movement might either be integrated into existing far-right parties that the movement might produce new parties, which it, which it did, but have not been very successful. Well, the third option would also be kind of to, to disperse into the broader arena of online political organizing and then also the online parties that Quinn was talking about before. I'm not sure about the crystal, the crystal ball prediction uh, question, but I, I I do think that what we're seeing is is a mutation of of political entrepreneurship and of and of these movements themselves into ever more extreme discourses and alliances. One of the most worrisome, I think, is the transformation from anti anti lockdown politics to anti climate politics. So we we kind of flag this possibility in our piece that in in a future where there, we're going to need to have collective action and state action on climate change that kind of these bottom up movements or sometimes top down coordinated movements um, that are deeply rooted in conspiracy discourses can be quite disruptive to to climate action. I think we're seeing that in a, in a piece I'm writing uh, right now with with members of the Zetkin Collective were talking about how in the UK there's this uh, there's this group called the Blade Runners um, who are actively cutting down the infrastructure and cameras that are put in place to track people's the license plate on their cars to enforce 
um, anti-emission rules. And so there's a kind of bottom-up movement driven by online conspiracy theories to say this idea of 15-minute cities or the idea that you would have kind of environmental regulations from the local level to the national level is, in fact, a, another instance of the Great Reset of the of the globalist elites taking away our freedom, in this case, our freedom to uh, to pollute. I think that's one kind of uh, recent transformation of of these movements into the terrain of far right politics and and in this case, anti-climate populism. Yeah, I think that the way that it has been channeled into existing political parties is maybe uh, the one scenario we didn't expect as much. I mean, I personally have been surprised by how quickly the air went out of concern for like the pandemic per se, right? I mean, the pandemic, I think, is itself not a major day-to-day issue for average voters, either in Germany or or North America. Um, but the ambient energy that was produced by the pandemic and its aftermath, I think, has like pooled in existing political party systems. So in Germany, you have the surprise victory since the pandemic of the social Democrats who were thought to be sort of down and out, no longer a big factor in politics. They would be, they received, I would say, the kind of the mainstream energy of the of the pandemic and its aftermath. It's a, the opponents of the the pandemic's measures have pooled very much in the alternative for Germany party, right? And the, the latest polls now show, show the hard right AFD polling ahead of the ruling Social Democratic Party, which is extremely troubling and, and a very stark shift from where we were at even three or four years ago. And I think Will is right there. The climate politics is absolutely the thin edge of the wedge. And there, I think to their own peril, the, the normie Social Democratic Party have ignored that kind of that y-axis of people's exposure to economic hardship and risk because one thing that was probably will be seen as a great error now retrospectively is they pushed through a bill about needing to replace gas-powered boilers with heat pumps in the short-term future that was rightfully, as with the Gilets Jaunes uh, carbon tax, understood as a kind of regressive tax on poorer people. So people, both for good reason and for not so good reason, revolted against what looked like the confirmation of their idea that climate um, transition was going to happen by diktat from above all of a sudden in ways that reach into the very most intimate parts of your life. So that the way that that's been managed, I think, has been pretty catastrophic. And to me, it's a sign of having taken the message out of the pandemic as being one of opposition and kind of silencing like these people are just fools and they need to be led down the correct path instead of doing a good job of listening to what people's grievances actually are and then figuring out how you can roll things out in a way that are phased in such a way that they don't hit more vulnerable people first of course all that stuff has happened but somehow you know we have ended up i think in an even worse situation than we were in when this all started william have you got a final word that uh will not be so uh, blackpilled. <laughs> he was going to go harder. Oh no, I was going to go. I was going to go even darker. Yeah, the note that I was going to add to Quinn's observation about the off day um, growing in in the polls ahead of elections in the coming years. So it's polling in thirty percent to forty percent, almost forty percent in in parts of the eastern part of the country, and now it just broke the twenty percent polling uh, mark in parts of, of 
the Western part of the country. Recently, so on that note, but also kind of just to, to widen the, the lens a little bit, I mean, to think about how an era, this era of pandemic politics is having, potentially having, it depends on how you interpret it, having long lasting effects. I think that the way that we think about the, the middle of society or the, or the mainstreaming of right wing positions um, is, uh, it needs to be rethought. So there's a, there's a, a survey that's done every single year in Germany. It's called the, the middle study or the study of the middle of society because of the obsession in Germany about the, there being this middle of society that protects against the extreme left and against the extreme right. So like an entire political discourse built on horseshoe theory, right? And what the, the study showed is that there's been this uptick in extreme right-wing uh, views from 2 to 3% in years past to 8%. And there's been an uptick from 12% to 20% of people just not rejecting. So being saying, ah, there's, you know, there's, it's a little gray area. Is this right wing belief true or, or not? Um, so there's an kind of an increasing level of, of tolerance for, for these kinds of discourses. And then more broadly, 51% of, uh, of those surveyed said that they don't trust public institutions and 40% feel politically powerless, 60% are worried about inflation. So these are kind of like widespread fears. And I think that on the one hand, the fact that the off day has risen, including in parts of the country where you had some, some major mobilization of, of fair dengue is something that we need to be thinking about and and organizing around and struggling against. But on the other hand, I think that, I mean, the, the fact that there are these kinds of sentiments and these kinds of fears, including the fears of downward mobi mobility um, and the, the idea, the felt need for state investment that just hasn't been, that hasn't happened and that's been blocked by the, the free market liberals and the government in Germany, I think is something that the, the political left both in this country and in the United States needs to, to grapple with because the, these material conditions are very much linked to the, the kind of the realm of discourses and beliefs that we've been discussing. And yeah. Quinn Slobodian and William Callison, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we'll have you back in a year and we hope you bring some better news. <laughs> and uh, oh, yeah. it's a real pleasure. Thanks for your work. <laughs> really, it, you know, high powered explanatory stuff. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. A, a real pleasure. And we really appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you for listening to another episode of Conspirituality Podcast. We'll see you back here on the main feed or in Patreon. Mm -hmm.